come along and we will find the way to justice rising like the sun. Hey there. Welcome to the Deeper Podcast, brought into this episode with that beautiful music, courtesy of Benjamin Hansen. Now, if you haven't joined us before, the Deeper Podcast is all about how we can love the hell out of this world with just a little bit of courage to do the small acts that add up in the end. And I'm one of your hosts, the Reverend Sean Neil Barron, and it's so good to be with you today. Now, we are in our series on belonging. We're actually wrapping it up. I'm very excited about the series that's coming next. And uh, it's going to be interesting because it's a little bit of a growing series for a lot of us because we're going to be exploring the idea of God. But that's coming in a few weeks. But this week, uh, we are focusing on how we belong across difference. And today you're going to hear two reflections, one from Reverend Elaine Aaron Tenbrink and one from Reverend Gretchen Haley, which is all going to be exploring the nature of belonging across difference, specifically looking through the lens of cultural competency and how we have negotiated as a community who is accepted and who is not, whose cultures can be seen as worthy, whose cultures are seen as valid, but also how do we get to that place of seeing each other's culture as valid. And we're going to be looking particularly at some of the ways that queer and trans people have sought acceptance and some of the, well, I guess some maybe some of the dark sides or the ways that that strategy was playing on a specific kind of part of our humanity, which only seems to see each other as human when we are the same. So first, I'm going to invite up this message, this reflection from Reverend Elaine, who's going to talk about her experience in Minnesota and the fight for queer rights there. The latest waves of anti-LGBTQ legislation and moral panic is anything but new. It's just that for a moment there, we started to believe that progress, at least in this way, could be trusted to keep progressing. But the pushback isn't new. What's new is the idea that there could be real acceptance for trans and queer people. After all, it was only 10 years ago that more than 30 states had anti-marriage equality constitutional amendments up for vote on their ballots. Which also means that it was just about 10 years ago that so many folks were fighting to defeat these amendments. It was also about 10 years ago that I arrived in Minnesota in the summer of 2013 uh, where my very first experience at the UU church I was serving was called the Big Gay Wedding. So this was the first time I did anything with this congregation, and what we were doing was that simultaneously in multiple rooms of the church, multiple ministers were marrying same-sex couples, and it was glorious. Like, the first thing I got to do was affirm the love and commitment of people who'd been together for years, people who had children, people who'd already had multiple ceremonies, and people who were newly committing themselves to each other. And that day, they all became legally married in the eyes of the state of Minnesota. And the cake was really, really big. What a day. A day that came about through the hard work of a group that called themselves Minnesotans United for All Families, 
which included many folks from Unitarian Universalist churches in the Twin Cities. And this group fought hard to defeat a ballot initiative that would have made a prohibition on same-sex couples getting married a constitutional guarantee. Only one other state at that point had been able to defeat a measure like this. And this happened also after 29 or 30 other states had successfully passed such constitutional amendments. So the odds were really not in the favor of uh, UUs and other equality and human loving people in the state of Minnesota. But they decided that they needed to try. But they decided to take a little different tack than the groups in other states had. And specifically, they had two unique approaches. The first approach was that they did not concede religious grounds on this issue. They were active in speaking through a faith lens and in being relationships across churches and synagogues, inviting leaders and members to come out and say, actually, marriage equality is a religious issue for us, and that religious people were not just on the side of making this amendment pass. The second thing they did, which was probably even more impactful, and which I heard people talk about over and over again during my time in Minnesota, was that rather than focusing on a narrative of equal rights and fairness for gays and lesbians, they trained thousands of volunteers to have conversations over the phone and face-to-face -face with as many people as they could about how marriage had the same importance for straight couples as it does for gay couples. And of course, embedded in this was a narrative about equality and fairness, but it was a different kind of focus. And it was a very effective strategy because at the time, and it turns out also for a lot of people even today, there was a mindset where people just only thought about marriage as between a man and a woman. Many people grew up with this idea and it was just the automatic default story in their heads. And so the idea was that same, that same-sex people could get married was different, if not odd, or maybe even a little bit triggering for lots of people, especially people for whom marriage was really important. So the personal calls from volunteers went something like this. Why is marriage so important to you? And then the volunteer would listen for as long as the person wanted to talk, and then the volunteer would be vulnerable and they would say things like, you know, I'm gay and pretty much what you have to say about what's important about marriage to you is what's important about marriage to me. I mean, my family, gay and lesbian families, they look pretty much like yours and there's commitment and there's also lots of laundry. And if there's kids, those kids also need to be wrangled and coordinated. And there's lots of love. And so in this movement, instead of demanding, let queer people have justice and fairness, they pivoted a little and said, hey, they just want in. Let them into this thing because in fact, it's all the same. And this strategy worked. 
The polls from before the campaign started and after the campaign ended were hugely different. They made the needle move so that 53% of Minnesotans voted to not ban same-sex marriage. And after that vote, no other ballot initiative was ever put on the ballot in any other state. They were able to move the needle, which is not nothing. And yet, what Reverend Gretchen is going to get into in the next little while is about how the strategy that they in instituted in Minnesota, I mean, was a challenge. Actually, the underpinnings of the strategy may actually show us how we are not actually very good at dealing across difference. So here's Reverend Gretchen. My partner Carrie and I, we celebrated our 24th anniversary just a few weeks ago, right? Or you might say it was our 20th anniversary. Or you might say it was our 10th anniversary. Or maybe it was our 8th anniversary. See, anniversaries are very confusing when you've been married three times. Or whether when you've been non-legally committed and then civilly united. And then finally legally married in 2015 with each time adding just a little more right. We never like to turn down a chance to celebrate, so we took every opportunity. Like those callers in Minnesota talked about, we would be the first to acknowledge that across all of our years and our ceremonies, our queer relationship is filled with just as much tediousness as everyone else's. And at the same time, I have always felt just a little uncomfortable with this extremely effective tactic that says, well, it's okay because we're basically all the same. Because it implies that fundamentally, in order to belong, in order to be worthy of the same dignity, you have to be fundamentally the same. That behind whatever superficial difference seems to be true, we're all basically the same, right? And that is what makes us all belong. We can now see the consequences of this tactic from 10 years ago playing out today with the pushback about trans inclusion, where the rhetoric repeatedly focuses on how different trans people are. It is how other, how much trans people, therefore, because they're so different, do not belong. They don't belong in bathrooms or sports teams or healthcare or in any, some of our states. But that is not, of course, what our faith tells us. Our faith tells us that dignity and worth are inherent across all people, across all parts of us. That not only are all of us worthy of love, but every part of us is worthy of love. Every single part. Every different part. Every queer part. Queer, as in not the same. Queer, because explicitly different. Now, many of you may know I just returned from Pittsburgh and are like literally seven hours ago. <laughs> My flight was delayed. I think I'm doing pretty good. Um, <laughs> I was at our Unitarian Universalist General Assembly all this last week. Um, that's our national annual gathering of Unitarian Universalists. 
We have been actively discussing a major update to what has been known since 1985 as our principles. We will at Foothills be talking about this a lot more, this, about this proposal in the coming year, as it's just been approved, like literally I read the results this morning, um, to move forward for a final year of discussion before the actual vote um, next year. But anyway, I bring this up here because at one point in the lots of discussion you use, we love a lot of discussion, and someone was at the con mic, so that means they're like speaking against the proposal, and specifically, they wanted to speak against the way the new articulation seeks to dismantle white supremacy culture. Because he said that, you know, what it sounds like when people describe white supremacy culture is it just sounds like what he describes as Yankee culture. And Yankee culture, he says, is just what it means to be a Unitarian Universalist. I asked my friend who was sitting by me, can we boo? And she said this. She said no. I was, she was correct, obviously. Um, it's like inadvertently he was proving the point. But also, this was offering a really great example of how difficult it can be to create belonging across difference. Because it's difficult, especially for those of us who are a part of the culturally dominant group, because you don't even really realize what's happening people who are white or cis or male or able-bodied, any of the dominant perspectives and behaviors, it just sort of feels like, like natural, you know, or synonymous with what it means to be part of that group, just what it means to be part of a Unitarian Universalist or a United States citizen, just a human being. Here is the good news, though. Despite those challenges, we can, we all can grow in our capacity to base our belonging in difference rather than connecting only where we are the same. We can develop our capacity to be in authentic relationship with people who are different than us. Expanding our sense of belonging like this requires we move from a monocultural lens to an intercultural lens. That is one where, so in monocultural lens is where one, uh, people that conform to a specific culture, only those people who conform to a specific culture can thrive. And an intercultural one is where people from many different distinct cultures can fully show up together and flourish. According to Dr. Milton Bennett, who uh, came up with this concept, the journey from mono to interculturalism has six distinct developmental stages. Developmental, like as in, that means you can grow from one to the next. Is you're not stuck there forever. I mean, at least if you choose to grow. So I'm gonna tell you the six stages. And if I was really, I was not at GA this past week, I would have a slide for you, but instead we're just gonna have to remember them in our heads, okay? So the first one is um, in this step in this journey of is monoculturalism. You're just, right, because you're going from monoculturalism to interculturalism. The first step, you're just in monoculturalism, which is also known as denial. Because you're not, but you think you are. This is where you think your culture and reality is reality, period. And you really don't care what anyone else would believe or think that's different than you. 15 years ago, when I first encountered this model, I, I 
I, I remember thinking this is a pretty rare and non-mainstream way of approaching the world. But now I feel 15 years later, I can see denial everywhere. People in denial interpret difference as a matter of being like less than, like less smart or capable, less hardworking, less moral. It isn't that someone has a different and equally valid background, culture, or way of seeing the world. They're incompetent or lazy or rude. So the important thing to know as you're all sitting there thinking about all the people you know that are in denial <laughs> um, is that the refusal to accept difference in this stage is not actually because they don't, they don't accept it. It's because they literally can't perceive it. So that when they look at a situation, it's like they're kind of colorblind to the way cultural difference is showing up. Here's an example that might ap apply to some of you. Like when a young person in your life doesn't return your phone call and instead texts you, maybe you experience that sometimes as being kind of rude, when actually what's happening there is a cultural difference. So that's stage one. I'm going to start here. Denial. Okay. The next one is defense. This is where you get that other cultures exist, but yours is the best one. So you have to defend against it. Your culture is the most evolved culture, like Yankee culture. Is that even a thing? I mean, I guess it is. Yankee culture. And you live in an us versus them world in which cultural differences are a threat to you. If you're in denial, difference doesn't, if you're in denial, difference doesn't threaten you because it doesn't exist. But once you're in defense, you have to actively oppose difference. You can hear this like everywhere today in like the opposition to critical race theory, for example, because it's a, the difference itself is a threat to your own culture. There's also a subgroup of defense um, that it's what Bennett calls defense reversal. This is where people adopt the view that other cultures are superior to their own, which is often that is it often is based in a superficial or stereotypical understanding of those other cultures. And defense can sometimes look at first like it's championing difference. Right? Like, oh, people are so they're celebrating a lot of diversity, but actually a closer look reveals that there's just as much othering and dehumanization as there is in the regular sort of defense. Okay, so that's, we got denial, defense, and the next step is minimization. So this is when you think that other people's cultures exist, but you just believe that underneath it all, people are pretty much just like you, and that other cultures and have knowledge and different customs, and you don't put down those other cultures, but you just pretty much like see them all as we're just all basically the same, which is, you know, what the folks in Minnesota and other tactics in the same-sex marriage um, equality process, uh, that's what they did. And that and so what a lot of our so-called cross-cultural experiences of belonging are based on, this minimization of difference. But we have to get to the root of what makes us the same in order for us to access a place of shared belonging. But this idea is um, in, inadvertently implies that those cultural differences are unimportant 
and therefore often defaults to the dominant cultural values and practices. The next stage, okay, stage four, is acceptance, which simply means you are aware that you have a culture. And it's just one culture in a world of cultures. And other people have just as complex a culture as you do. This does not necessarily mean that you agree with the other way the other culture is expressed. It just means you understand and accept it that they, that they exist and they're just as le legitimate as your own. Okay, so then the next stage we're in five is adaptation. This is where you recognize the value of having more than one cultural perspective available to you. So it's not just acceptance, it's kind of thinking this, there's something really valuable about this. You make space for people to show up in all of their particular culture's fullness, and you're able to adapt to cultural differences to figure out how the most people can flourish in any given situation. The final stage is integration. This is when your identity or sense of self evolves to incorporate the values, beliefs, perspectives, and behaviors of others in appropriate and authentic ways. Those last two words are just, I have to say them again, in appropriate and authentic ways because I'm not talking about misappropriation or cultural tourism. This is the experience of being a truly multicultural human who is choosing in an authentic and appropriate cultural context for their behavior. It's actually what most commonly happens for people who are themselves not part of the, they're a part of the non-dominant group. So it's also what's often termed code switching. Okay, so to move from one stage to the other, right, because I said it's developmental, so in order to move, you need to do some really specific things. Um, so to move from, uh, from denial to defense, you need to just notice that people are different and that those differences are cultural. You just need to have an, that awakening of difference, that difference exists. To move from uh, defense to minimization, you need to recognize a common humanity amongst people who are different. So it's like that is the thing that you're trying to overcome in minimization. But to get to minimization, you first need to say, there's a, we have a common humanity across all of our differences. I don't need to defend. To move from minimization to acceptance, you need to recognize that all of your beliefs and behaviors are influenced by your culture and then get in relationship with people who are different from you. Real relationship. And then those relationships over time lead you to do the next step of moving from acceptance to adaptation, which is how you authentically hold your cultural values and be in relationship with other people. That is staying both differentiated and connected. Finally, to move to authentic integration, you need to be in authentic community with culturally diverse people and with leadership that mirrors this diversity and that intentionally engages a multicultural and even multilingual practice of learning and sharing and that explicitly integrates the varied cultural experiences of everyone in the community. So what stage do you think you are at. Denial, defense, that's regular or reversal, minimization, acceptance, adaptation, or integration.
think about it for a second. I started to realize that in different settings, maybe I'm in different places. So I want to ask uh, just as a whole, what stage you think we would be at as a whole church? So if we are like most Unitarian Universalists, we're likely at the defense and specifically reversal stage. That's the majority of Unitarian Universalists. Right? That's, that's my uh, inclination. Or in the minimization stage. It's somewhere between. But, but defense for us most often shows up as reversal. But it also can show up just like the Yankee culture dude. Who is in, I mean, he is a long, he's like a leader in one of our largest churches. So I just want to acknowledge that's a big, that is a part of who we are. Even though it's also when we self-identify, we put ourselves in the acceptance or adaptation stage. In Fort Collins, I, as a city, I've often thought that we live somewhere between minimization, reversal defense, and maybe most of all, because one of the things that I hear most often in our town is that we are just not that diverse here. Northern Colorado, not that diverse. Which I think is, it just seems like shorthand for we don't have a lot of people of color here, which a lot of the time is code for I don't see slash interact slash know that many people of color. And remember, the hallmark for the denial stage is simply not seeing. But what we know is that as of 2022, at least 22% of the people living in Fort Collins are not white. And 35% of the incoming students at CSU were in 2022 people of color. And what people of color in Fort Collins often share with, with me is that it, the narrative that Fort Collins isn't that diverse actually just invisibilizes them further as if 22% of our city isn't enough to count. It also maintains a story that belonging in this community is based on us all being the same. Fort Collins isn't diverse. As in, like, to be white is to be a member of Fort Collins, and to not be white means you, you don't belong. It also means that for, like, 22% of our community, the predominant stage is a lot of code switching which is often pretty exhausting. And if you think Port Collins isn't very diverse, you, you probably don't actually notice when it actually is. You don't notice when your friends or your coworkers, or the people that you meet on the street, are from different cultural practices or understandings or backgrounds than yours. You don't notice that every year we have a Dia de Muertos celebration or our wonderful Juneteenth festivals. You don't notice the amazing work and contributions of people of color in our community, the leadership and real change that has happened. And it also means you don't notice the ways that racism happens here. And you don't know the ways that belonging and for in, in Fort Collins is based on being the same. That thing I, I think I said it I don't know, in the last couple of weeks that in Fort, when you move to Fort Collins, everybody, there's like a requirement that you love Fort Collins and that everybody feels happy and at home here. Um, but it means that you don't notice that some of that is, is based on an assumption of being the same. The truth is, maybe you have said it, and I think I have too at some point, I've also heard this about our church, that we aren't that diverse. 
which also invisibilizes both the diversity and the racism that our system perpetuates and the ways that belonging here can sometimes require looking and being the same. But our faith requires a belonging, not based on sameness, but on an embrace of authentic human diversity. Diversity that is so vast, not just across all of us, but even within each of us. Vast and complex and irreducible. Our faith requires a belonging that grows along that path of intercultural competency from denial to acceptance and adaptation. Our faith requires us to become a community and a congregation that sees and celebrates our differences and meets them again and again with curiosity and humility, wonder, and joy. Because it turns out that unleashing courageous love is not the same thing as unleashing white, middle-class, mostly college-educated best practices. And it turns out that our faith does not come undone when we disentangle it with Yankee culture. It grows. So my challenge for us is to actively challenge the story that we aren't that diverse as a church or as a city, which means if you experience, as you experience your life in Northern Colorado or as a part of Foothills, I invite you to think actively about the people you meet, people you encounter every day and in small groups and on Sundays and just begin to imagine and expand the categories that exist to see what is already here to create a belonging wide enough for everyone to show up with their fullness, their differences, their truth, and their uniquely beautiful way of being, where we can all belong across all of our differences in joy. May it be so. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope those two reflections gave you some food for thought. I would love to know where you are at in that journey, where you think you're at, where you hope you're at, but actually where you like deep-seatedly think you might actually be, knowing that this is a journey. And the best part of this journey is that we get to grow a soul together, and we get to grow a soul together by growing and stretching who we are and who we're in relationship with. We'd love to also know who you are. We're trying to grow this podcast to reach our whole community. We'd love to know what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, what you'd like to see. So if you have a second, and I assume you do have at least a minute because you might have listened to at least a 40 minute podcast. So you can, you know, at least take a minute and let us know who you are. You can do that by going to foothillsuu.org slash podcast survey. Just a few questions and will really help us shape the future of this podcast. So take a second, www.foothillsuu.org slash podcast survey. And we'd love, love, love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening.